Thank you, Pastor Scott. And I want to thank each of you for making this week a great week for our family. We are not from the state of Iowa. We don't come from an Iowa regular Baptist church, but you have welcomed us and you've included us and you've made us feel at home here, and we're grateful for that. I often tell our folks at Fourth Baptist Church that the greatest social network in all the world is not Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but it is the body of Christ. And the relationships we share as brothers and sisters in Christ is greater than any other network. I've traveled to more than 20 countries around the world, and in every place that I visit or travel, everywhere I go, there are Christians who immediately embrace me, not just as friends, but as family. And the greatest network is not a social network, but a spiritual network, the, the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thing, and it reminds me that Jesus is building his church as he promised to do. And while sometimes I am prone to the Elijah syndrome, that self-absorbed pity party in which I think that I am the only one who still remains serving Jesus Christ, the only one who has not bowed the knee, I come to places like IRBC and I look across an audience of, of hundreds of believers representing dozens and dozens of churches and someday we will join the multitudes, the throng around the throne where we will worship the risen Lamb, Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Amen? Amen. This evening, for the final time, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll go to chapter number 12, from which I've prepared a message titled, What's the Final Answer to All the Questions in Life? It's during the month of May each year that students from grade schools to graduate schools across the country complete their assignments and they prepare for their final exams. And after weeks and months, in some cases years in the classroom, it is now time to fully and finally prove what they have learned as the necessary course of study has been completed and they are then facing those final exams for graduation. And they're given a test and it might be an oral exam, it may be, it may be um, true or false, it may be multiple choice, it may be fill in the blank, it may be extended essay, but regardless of what shape the test takes, Regardless of the shape of the final exam, students will prove their learning by answering the questions. And if you answer the questions rightly, you pass the test. But here in the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon has reversed the order of learning and testing. For Solomon, it seems that the exam is taken first. And then the lessons come later. And for that reason, all of our studies from Ecclesiastes have been titled with a question. I've used the interrogative mood, the, the, question, the, the question mark, to introduce and present each study because we've been taking a test without first learning the lessons. And these have been the questions on our test the first question, Sunday morning, if you remember, what is the meaning of life? Monday evening, what can I try that will fulfill me in life? I think it was Tuesday evening, why does life happen when it happens? Last evening, 
Why doesn't life make sense? If we were to continue through the book of Ecclesiastes, I wish we had time to do that. From chapter 5, I would ask, what's wrong with my worship? Also in chapter 5, why is enough never enough? In chapter 6, how can I be happy? Chapter 7, is there something better for me? Chapter 7, why don't things in life add up? Chapter 8, what is the worth of wisdom? Chapter 9, what should we do in life? Chapter 10, am I living wisely or foolishly? Chapter 11, what is going to happen in my life? And also, how should I live while I am dying? And these questions could be posed as Solomon posed them in Solomon's world and in our world, in the real world. In real life, the questions come first. The exam or the test comes first. And then later, we learn the lessons. Later, we are given the right answers. At the top of your notes, I've written this. Life is a test. The questions are hard. The lessons are long. The answers are simple. What? The answers are simple? In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, and he gives us the answers. The simple answers to all of these questions, all of these misgivings, perhaps, that you have privately in your mind and your heart, questions that you would never want to utter publicly. But he gives us now these answers. So from Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14, what's the final answer to all the questions in life? Let's pause briefly for prayer, shall we? God in heaven above, we bow our heads and our hearts before you, acknowledging that you are our creator, you are our redeemer, Lord, you are our sustainer, and God, as we've learned this week in the morning sessions, you are an incomprehensible God, and, and so, Lord, we, we bow in humility and surrender ourselves to your sovereignty. And God, as we look around the world at all that is under the sun, we're perplexed, we're confused, and we question. We feel, Lord, like we're, we're taking the final exam without ever having learned the lessons. And we just want to know the answers, how and why and when. I pray that you'd give us insight and understanding this evening from the Holy Scripture text. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Solomon has employed a literary device here in the book of Ecclesiastes, a, a literary device that is called an inclusio. An inclusio is that which begins and ends a discourse with the same words. I want you to follow with me here a, a bit of technical um, study, but in chapter 1, verse number 2, Chapter 1, verse number 2, if you look there, Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But you have your Bibles open to chapter 12, verse number 8. What does he say? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so not only do those words mark the beginning of the preacher's message, they mark the end of his message, and they establish the very theme of his message. Solomon has been using the Hebrew word havel, meaning vanity, to repeatedly describe the futility of life under the sun, life in a fallen world. He often refers to the sons of men or the sons of Adam, fallen man apart from God, under the heaven or under the sun. 
And I've illustrated that as soap bubbles. Soap bubbles shimmer and they shine for a moment. And we impulsively, instinctively, we reach out to grasp them. But alas, we cannot. And they disappear and they're gone. They vanish. And over the course of, of Solomon's discourse, he has lamented that everything in life is vanity. Work is vanity. There's nothing permanent to be gained from one's labor. He's lamented that human wisdom is vanity. It only increases our frustration. And in the end, everyone dies whether you're wise or you're, you're dumb. Solomon has lamented that pleasure is vanity, the wealth and the wine, and the, the women. Money is vanity because money doesn't satisfy and we lose everything we gain anyway. Life is vanity for in the end we all turn to dust. And one might conclude that if everything in life is vanity, nothing matters. However, at the end now, Solomon is going to make the case that vanity doesn't get the last word. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 is yet to be read. Now, a bit more literary technicality. Some scholars will argue that chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 are the words of an editor. That they were added to the end of Solomon's discourse to clean up his dark, cynical worldview. And they point to the use of the third person beginning in verse number 9. Verse number 9, and moreover, because the preacher was wise... He still taught the people knowledge, yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. It sounds like someone else is, re, is, is referencing and reporting what the preacher Solomon has said. However, I would contend, remember the inclusio, he begins and he ends in the same way. I would argue that the literary device of the inclusio indicates to us that this is not an editor, but this is in fact Solomon. So go back again to chapter number one. And let's look for the third person. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Sounds very familiar. By the time you get to chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon begins using the first person. Chapter 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, was king. Look at verse 13, and I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom. Verse 14, I have seen all the works. Verse 16, I communed with my heart. Verse 17, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. And you get the picture. But at the end of the discourse now, in chapter 12, verse number 9, he reverts back to the third person. Now, if there, were an, if there was an editor that was packaging Solomon's sermon, introducing it and concluding it, it makes no sense why he would then record 12 chapters of the preacher's message only to contradict it at the end in a couple verses. Therefore, if there is an editor, I would submit that the preacher and the editor are speaking with the very same voice. Ultimately, I prefer, I accept, I believe that all of these words are the words of Solomon under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and he now concludes his message, and he gives us the final answers to all the cynical questions that he's been asking as he observes life under the sun. Begins in the third person, all is vanity. 
he, he, he begins that way. He concludes in the third person. All is vanity, but here is the answer to life's questions. So let's look at it. Chapter 12, verse number 9. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. The words of, uh, of scholars are like well-driven nails given to one shepherd, by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end. Much study is wearisome to the flesh. And what Solomon is saying is, is I have an answer for all that you've just read in this book. And the first answer is number one in your notes, know God's word. Know God's word. Now, remember that King Solomon was very gifted by God with wisdom to discern right and wrong and govern God's people, Israel. And Solomon used that wisdom to teach his people. And Solomon labored to evaluate and identify different wisdom sayings or proverbs that would help his people know how to live life under the sun. According to 1 Kings chapter 4, Solomon authored or uttered 3,000 proverbs to teach his people knowledge. But all of those proverbs are not just the quotable quotes of an ancient philosopher. And all of those proverbs are not just the wit and the wisdom of one like Benjamin Franklin. But rather, they are the inscripturated, inspired word of God. We know many of those 3,000 proverbs from Solomon as being part of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and of course the book of Proverbs. They are wisdom from above. As God imparted wisdom to Solomon, Solomon collated and curated wisdom for his people. Verse 11 acknowledges that they are given by one shepherd. Do you see it there at the end of verse 11? All of the wisdom that Solomon delivered to his people was given by one shepherd. And the word shepherd is capitalized by the, the, the King James, the New King James, the ESV, the NAS, because Bible translators understand this to be a reference to God. This one shepherd is in fact God. God is the giver of wisdom. The one shepherd God gave Solomon the wisdom that's contained in those thousands of Proverbs. As he pondered and prepared, the end of verse 10 says, words of truth, so that his people might be pricked and protected by them. I, I use the word pricked because there in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. A goad was a stick that a shepherd would use to, to poke or to prod an animal to move forward in a right direction. I, I use the word protected because there in verse number 12, the, the admonishment, my son, be admonished by these things, the warnings, and the warnings protect someone from danger. And so Solomon's burden was to teach his people knowledge, verse number 9, by giving them words of truth, verse number 10, so that they might be pricked and protected by them as coming from the one shepherd above, verse number 11. Know God's word. If we were to jump to the New Testament, the familiar text in 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul put it this way, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's the one shepherd. And is profitable for doctrine. That's what is right. For reproof, that is what is not right. For correction, that's how to get right. 
for instruction in righteousness. That's how to stay right. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so to, to fully and finally answer the great questions in life, we must know God's word. We must know wisdom from above. We must know the ancient words, as the, the dear girl sang this morning. The ancient words of God. Wisdom from above. And it was Solomon's father, King David, who celebrated God's word in Psalm 119. And you, you know the passage, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You through your commandments have made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. And how can it be that God's word, that is his law, his commandments, his testimonies, his judgments, his precepts, how is it that God's word, wisdom from that one shepherd, can make one wiser than everyone else in life? Isn't that a, a bit arrogant? I can answer all of the big questions in life. Well, that's a bit arrogant, but it is because there is something qualitatively different about God's word than what is written in any other book, is what Solomon is saying there at the end of verse number 12. And so Solomon says there are a lot of people saying a lot of things. There are a lot of people writing a lot of books there are a lot of people who have a lot of answers for you when you are asking the questions of life. There are a lot of talking heads who pontificate about a lot of things. But if you listen to them, if you watch them, if you read them, they will only wear you out. Have you ever had to turn off Fox News just because you were exhausted by the arguments? I'm a news junkie, and I like to watch the news, but sometimes it just, it just wears me out. Don't be like the person who Paul warned about in 2 Timothy 3, the one who is always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that not describe the information age that we live in? Always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And folks, God's word is sufficient to answer the questions of life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's word is sufficient? Fully sufficient? What about the questions of your marriage? Or your parenting? Or your finances? Or victory over sin? Do you know what God's word says? Is God's word sufficient to tell us about God's person and his purposes, his worth and his works? Make this book your food and drink. Make it your meat. Make it your map. Make it your, your treasure. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So after 12 chapters where Solomon has created insecurity, uncertainty, lots of question, a little cynicism. Solomon says in the third person here that his role and his goal as king in, in Israel was to identify truth, wisdom from above, and to give that to his 
people so that they might be pricked by it, verse 11, so that they might be protected by it, verse number 12. And then Solomon cuts to the chase, and he says, let me give you the final answer, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. When all has been said and done at the end of the day, here's what he says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. The end of verse 13 there has often been translated, this is the whole duty of man. It's how I learned it in the King James Version years ago. It's, it's even how the ESV translates it today. However, the word duty is actually not in the text. That's why in the King James, I think it's in italics there. It's an indication that it's, it's not actually in the Hebrew text. It was supplied by the Bible translators. But I believe the best rendering would read, this is the whole of everyone. That is to say, fearing God and keeping his commandments is not just our duty, it is our very essence. It ought to be who we are. And so I would give you number two, fear God's person. Number one, know God's word. Number two, fear God's person. And the idea of fearing God is pervasive throughout the, the scripture. In fact, if you, you were to compare it, the, the Bible speaks of our need to love God 88 times. The Bible speaks of our need to trust God 91 times. The Bible speaks of our need to fear God 278 times. And so whatever is meant by fear God, it must be important. And we most often explain the fear of God as being a reverential awe, like David expressed in Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the works of your, your fingers, the, the sun and the moon which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, I, I stand in awe of God. That's my fear of God. God is the omnipotent creator. He's, he's the sustainer. He's the sovereign. He's immutable. He's holy. And, and we're impressed by that. But fearing God is more than being impressed by God. And follow this now. If we have a right view of God and we understand his attributes, as we have learned from Pastor Jeff through the course of this week, it will not just make us impressed with God but it will compel us to obey him. That's number three, keep his commandments. And it's there in verse 13. The conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is who we ought to be. Now, don't miss the progress of this thought. All right? Follow me here. Know God's word, that, that's number one. The precepts and the principles that are inscripturated for us are wisdom from God to provide the answers to life's great questions, all right? Number two, fear God's person. The one who has given us his word is the creator of the universe. In fact, back in chapter 12, verse number one, chapter 12, verse number six, remember your creator, okay? Fear God's person. But then number three, keep God's commandments, for if or since we have God's word, we should obey because it is from God. It is from God. Now, let me illustrate it in this way. Don't lose me. This is going to get really good. Here's the illustration. There are times when I instruct my children to do something or to not do something. And inevitably, invariably, they challenge my instruction with the question, why? Why should I have to obey your instruction? And invariably, inevitably, I answer, because I'm your father. 
and I said so, and that ought to be enough, right? Now, is that sufficient? How many of you think it is sufficient to say, because I am your father, because I said so, that's why? How many think that's sufficient? Okay, a few of you. Perhaps on the other hand, the rest of you, either because you're gutless wonders and you're not brave enough to, to really commit, right? Or perhaps you're thinking, well, rules without reason equal rebellion. And really it's incumbent upon a father to explain the reasons why, right? How many of you agree with that? Okay, you are gutless wonders, right? All right. All right, here's my argument. On the one side, we argue that rules without reason equal rebellion. I should give my children the reason why I've asked them to do something or not do something, and that would be helpful to them. Okay, fair enough. But on the other side, giving them the reason why only empowers them to decide for themselves whether or not they need to obey based upon their own judgment, their own reason, their own logic, rationale in the matter. And if my reason isn't good enough in their minds and I fail to convince them of my reason why, the necessity for my instruction, they will then feel justified in their disobedience. Dad doesn't know what he's talking about. Dad doesn't understand the situation. Dad's the only dad who is like that. But folks, we are the very same way. Now, you just wait. Listen to this. We often function in the same way. God has given us instructions. And sometimes he indulges us with an explanation for the reason why. And that's helpful. Other times he does not. And unfortunately, even when he does tell us why, we sometimes fail to obey because we're not convinced of it. We're not convinced of the necessity of obedience because we aren't convinced that God knows what he's doing or that God knows what he's talking about or that God understands our circumstances and that it's best for us. So what if Noah, Old Testament, Genesis chapter 6, what if Noah refused to build a boat, an ark, because God's explanation to Noah was irrational to Noah? Build a boat, well, why, Lord? Well, because I'm going to flood the earth. Sure, right? I don't think so. Do you know what Hebrews 11 says? Here it is. By faith, Noah, being moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. I am here to tell you that it is the proper fear of God that will motivate you to obey. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if you disagree. And even if your mind is still flooded with cynicism, skepticism, or questions about life. It is godly fear that will compel you to obey. It's the conclusion of the whole matter, folks. Fear God and keep his commandments. There's nothing in between. And if God says, I'm calling you to obey because I am God, that is a sufficient answer because he is God. And he said so. And then, it may not be popular, but verse 14. For God will bring every work 
into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. If we need to know God's word, what the one shepherd has given us, the wisdom that's inscripturated, if we are to fear God's person because of who he is, he is our creator, chapter 12, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 6. If we are then to keep God's commandments, that's number three, I'm not sure I gave that to you, keep God's commandments because of who God is, for no other reason, because of who he is, we fear him for who he is. Number four, we expect God's judgment. We expect God's judgment. Now, I want to reference Solomon's theme of vanity. One might read the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope perhaps I've whetted your appetite to to go home and on your own read through the book of Ecclesiastes and and come to understand Solomon's perspective. But you read Ecclesiastes and you might be inclined to think that nothing matters in life because everything is nothingness, everything is vanity, everything is havel, everything is soap bubbles that you, you can't even get. However, here now, Solomon is turning that idea on its head, and he drops the bomb on us in the end. And here's the bomb. Everything matters, actually, because God is the creator who rules over the world. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your creator. Look at chapter 12, verse number 6. Remember your creator. And one day, we will stand before our creator, and we will take the ultimate test, the final exam of all time. And we will have to answer for what we have done in this life under the sun. Practically, letter A, practically, this is what the Apostle Paul described. If you want to fill in the references, Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Romans 14.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul described the occasion when believers will stand before the beam of seat of Jesus Christ and give an account to our Creator and our Redeemer, and that will be a time of reward. But the Apostle Paul calls it the terror of the Lord as a point of motivation as we prepare for that day. Practically, we are compelled to live our lives in light of this accountability. Folks, I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. You may or may not say amen when I preach. You may or may not applaud when I preach. It doesn't matter. But someday I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account of all that I've done in this life. And that ought to cause some fear and trepidation. But there's more, and and this is really good. Practically, this is what the Apostle Paul, I, I believe, described. But then letter B, positionally, positionally, this is what Jesus Christ accomplished. And I've copied for you there what one Bible commentator has written. The New Testament reveals that in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus to bear God's judgment for us with his suffering and death. Since the penalty has has been paid, forgive the typo there, those who believe in Jesus need no longer dread God's judgment. What What is Romans 8 verse number 1? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Moreover, Jesus will be the judge in the final judgment. As Jesus himself said, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
After Jesus' death and resurrection, we seek to revere God and keep his commandments, not because we dread the coming judgment, but because we are grateful for God's grace in providing salvation for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So ultimately, we will be accepted at the Bema Seat. We will be rewarded at the Bema Seat, not because of what we've done in this life under the sun, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on this earth under heaven as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Folks, life is a test. And the questions are hard. And the lessons are long. And so often we we say to ourselves, if only I had learned that lesson before I was tested in that way. Right? It seems to be inverted. But the answers are simple. The answers are simple. And that's the conclusion of the whole matter. I would submit to you that being rightly related to God through Jesus Christ is the final answer for everything. Life under the sun doesn't make sense. And there appear to me to be more questions than answers and what, what you've observed and what you've experienced what I've observed and experienced really threatens to leave us disillusioned about life. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, I ask that you would draw us to yourself, that we might see Jesus crucified, risen, coming again. Lord, we know that we're just pilgrims and strangers, sojourners on this earth, that we are by faith waiting for a heavenly home, not built with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And God, I ask that you would help us to keep the the answers simple, that God so loved us that he gave us Jesus in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.